What's going on, freaks and geeks? Welcome back to the Bad Christian Podcast. I don't know if you ever heard of this or not, but there's something called Emerald City Rock Fest, and it's this weekend, and it's in Seattle. It's Saturday. Devin and Toby's flying in. It's going to be a fun time. Emery's playing. It'll be later on in the evening, and then after us is Fall of Troy. So Fall of Troy's a really, really cool band. A lot of you guys know who they are. They were a Seattle local band, and then they got big, and then they were on Warp Tour, and then they... Have, haven't been together and we're excited to see them and to play we're doing a one-off show here in seattle tickets are at emerymusic.com we know some bc club people are coming up some people even come into town just for the show we'd love to see you all and oh yeah you've probably been meaning to join the bc club now that i've mentioned it that's something that was on your to-do list but i think it got buried after get groceries and you know clean the gutters but join the bc club thebcclub.com and uh, today's show, sponsored by Hymns. Get a trial month of Hymns for just $5 by going to 4 slash badchristian. Today's show is also sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Try ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. And finally, today's show is also sponsored by Stamps.com. You can get a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale when you go to stamps.com click on the microphone at the top of the home page and enter our code bad christian let's do it oh, hell yeah god showed up i don't give a shit what i put in my body you don't ever talk to me that way <laughs> so if you've never done oral then you're extrovert no girl it's my plan i showed my dad my penis when i was 25 years old you don't get more honest than that Three, two, one, voice memo. Where you going with that big old ass? I don't really want to <laughs> know, but I got to ask. Where you going with that big old ass? I don't really want to know, but I got to ask. If you don't hurry up and make this fast, I'm going to keep on driving and go right past. Because I don't care where that booty come from. I just know (laughs) that booty ain't from here. I don't care where that booty come from. I just know that booty ain't from here. All right. Bad Christian Podcast. We are just ride down the road and think of cat calls. I just. Is that you? Rap songs, Matt. That's oh, what rap I think. Songs. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm a, I'm a, I know I don't look like it. I, on the outside, I look like a white, middle class, 43 year old male that is cisgender. But inside, I'm just a rapper. Uh, uh, I'm, I feel like I, uh, you know, I just want to speak my truth in words mm-hmm. that rhyme. And that's, well, that's just, I yeah. think it's pretty pervasive in Christian culture that there's lots of white 40 year old males that, uh, they have a. They talk. Yeah, I'm not. It's unique. a real youth groupy thing to do. <laughs> does it to speak in a hip hop style? It's really. It's really goofy. You know I what know. I'm talking about, right? I definitely know what you're talking about. I'm not unique at all. But yeah, I get these thoughts in my head. It's like we said, if you uh, you can hit up Reva at Bad Christian, R E V A Reva at Bad Christian, and she'll send you these voice memos. And if you want to put a beat under one, maybe we'll play it on here or something like that. But I just like showing y'all what happens when I'm stuck and it's just me. Alone, like, like Matt. Matt, what do you do? Because I mean, my brain won't stop, and so I'm by myself in the car riding to the gym or something, you know, for a few minutes, and I just I have to get something out, or I, I can't sit there and do nothing. I don't mm-hmm. know. That feels that feels uncomfortable to sit alone with myself mm-hmm. <laughs> and not be talking out loud or singing. That's right. Yeah, it is. I usually <laughs> spend my time. Uh, 
I try to get lost in abstract thoughts. Very much, much more silent, but, yeah. but stimulating. But yeah. I try to get up as high as I can, uh, both both brain state wise and mentally to a, a level. If I'm by myself, what I like to do is think about high minded things and see if I can hang with yeah. myself or confuse myself. So it's just kind of abstract, but that's what yeah, I do. There's never you, been you, you make yeah. rap songs. Oh, but. and I talk to myself. It is so. I promise you, I've been in so many uncomfortable positions, especially like at a grocery store or something, or riding down the road where I'm just talking away, and and then I, like I'm going down the aisle of Walmart and I'm just talking away, and it's just me. And then mm-hmm. people look up and just stare at me, and and they just you know they don't understand or they get it, but they think it's weird that I'm talking, especially because I'm talking that loud. Mm-hmm. Not like I'm mumbling. I'm yeah, talking not, exactly like I am right now, but just to Toby. <laughs> but, but you know, like I'm having an argument with myself. But the thing is, if I do that, then this is what's going to happen, and you know it. You know, you I'm, should, I'll just be talking like that. You should uh, have it ready for when people look at you weird or when people ask you about it. Your line is that. You know, your wife passed a few years ago, and you just—that's how you deal with it. You just treat yeah. it like she's here. I'm talking that's to her. Who, uh, yeah, I have faked it before and acted <laughs> like I had like an earbud in or something like that. Like I hold my cover my ear and go, "Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, you need me? Okay, sorry. I I thought you were talking to me, and I walk on by. That's going to be a lot more bizarre when the AirPods get invisible. Oh, I know. And then you see people. I mean, it'll just be you'll ne- you know in, at any point somebody can act like they're on the phone or be gone or in some random conversation because it's uh it's it seems to be true to me that as the technology shrinks we get more interfaced with it so both things are happening at the same time we're both getting smaller more uh wearable type technology it's right. getting more integrated with us meanwhile our minds are leaving the present physical place and being occupied in uh an uh Something like a teleported environment. You're on yeah, the phone like cloud with somebody or else. You're yeah. looking at Facebook in a group that's, you're, you know, you're not in Target or in your car or sitting on your couch. Your mind is right. another different place, and the technology is getting smaller. You're not sitting in a movie theater. You're not looking at the TV. Then it's your phone screen. Then it's going to be on your contact lens, right. and then the AirPod's going to be invisible. So you're going to see humans walking around not there. They're going to right. be like zombies because you, you won't see any technology, yet none of them will be mentally present in their physical environment. You can but, see that happening just obviously. Yeah, but they'll be somewhere where they're completely engaged, which is right. really crazy, Right, that doesn't mean they're too. disengaged. But, but, oh, I know, but what I'm saying out. is, we're only, really true. We're, what we're talking about right now is disengaged from this physical meat That's thing right. that we're, we're stuck in and mm-hmm. fully engaged in this cloud transported being yep. uh, conscious state but one thing i thought too but you man, can't say maybe, it's not real but you know what you i mean can, uh, because people are saying oh everybody's just checked oh, out it's real days, yeah it's their real. phone well they're not checked out they're very engaged just not with you here right and and you're gonna realize how boring you are more and more but one uh i had this thought the other day um because i was thinking the same thing because sometimes people don't see my earbuds and then i think then it's uncut i have to go oh wait i have my earbud in that's why i wasn't listening to you and your dog walk past me or or you might have said something but i was thinking as the smaller it gets could there ever be this okay see if you can go with me here it feels like the brain is a computer and much like a computer whatever there's many different things i can't go there that's too much (laughs) just stop i cannot accept that sorry reva's head just exploded uh it feels like that your brain is controlling a bunch of things 
at once. Like your heart's beating. <laughs> you're also thinking about uh, having to pay that bill, and mm. you're also hungry, or you know, mm. or uh, you know, your body's letting you know you got to go take a dump or whatever it is. There's a bunch of different things happening. I was wondering, could technology get to where uh, you can have the conversation with somebody? Let's just say your wife, and she wants to talk about her day at work. Mm-hmm. And what the people say or whatever. Is there a way you think technology could get to where it could compartmentalize to where my brain can hold a whole conversation about that while I'm actually doing something in the cloud like watching a football game? Good question. Is that possible? That's what well, I'm wondering about. It's certainly possible. It's just a matter of what the, what it would mean and how to achieve it. But it would be possible and I'll give you one I mean, there's lots of ways to skin that cat, but for one, you could think of it as, you know how you have auto predictive text and it's starting to get more invasive in your emails. Like it'll give you a whole sentence and not just an autocorrect word or Uh whatever. It's predictive. So given enough listening data of conversation with you and your wife, I don't see why that part couldn't be automatic (laughs) (laughs) from her point of view. Uh, Like, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, it just that, would matter the audio interface and how the sound is made or how the communication goes, which could be more. I mean, in the future, that may. Right now, is it not true that you mostly communicate with your wife like about 50 50 text message and 50 50 audible? Yes. Do you know what sure. I mean? Yeah. Like, so half of your relationship now is this bullshit text based crap. Right. And you don't say it's not real. I mean, right. you're really talking to your wife. So if that text became predictive and a higher ratio, that's another way to do it. So you have these long conversations with your wife where you don't actually have to do anything but approve them. Meanwhile, you're engaged in playing, you know, Madden. Yeah. And you just look up and go, yep, that conversation is going about like I'd like for it to. And you look back down and continue to play. And the, the window pops up and you're Madden. And this is your conversation right. with your wife that's auto. Now, that is auto, though. Like the, the part where you're talking to your wife, that is pretty predictable and repetitive. And if, if the machine studied you, it would kind of know what you would say because you're kind of half engaged when you're talking to your wife a lot of times anyway, right? Yeah, of course. Uh, I, with everybody, I am. Yeah. I mean, you're going, yeah, 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 totally, totally. Oh, yeah, I can right. do oh, that. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind oh, of stuff. Oh, I can't believe that happened. How hard is that for the computer to, to you're do You're kidding that? me. It'd be better than you at it. Oh, and, yeah, that's what I'm saying. I think it might strengthen our relationship. But, but <laughs> no. even even for her, because she, I talk more than her, so she would love to have predictive, predictable speech to go back to right. me when I'm talking about something that she has no interest in. I right. talk so about qu- mostly things she's not interested in. So the question isn't, can it, is it technologically possible? It's just almost possible now in that way. Not That's to mention it could, be, it could be possibly in a telepathic way in the future too. There's many different ways it could be possible. The question is, can you accept it being, yeah. you know, can you accept it? Like what if, what if she turned on the predictive conversation with you and turned the level of sweetness and uh, encouragement up just, you know, 20% higher than she naturally possesses. And you were having fulfilling conversations with your wife. However, you knew that she was mostly distracted and only monitoring the conversation. Would you be able to accept and enjoy that or not is more of the question. Um, I think I might would be able to, maybe not in this moment, but I think if you give me a little bit of time, if I could realize she's doing that for me because she loves me and she can't offer me that. So if she could offer me that, she would. And that's her mm-hmm. way of doing that, right? Right. You know what I mean? That's so right. it, it actually seems kind of nice, the same way as a card. Most people don't write the cards, but you go, well, I can't write a card, but I want to tell you how I care it's about like you. A, it's like so a I'm card. Gonna go yeah. Do a, yeah, I'm going to go, I'm gonna go buy it. this two ninety nine <laughs> card. 
Yeah, I initialed the conversation that we just had. Don't worry. Right, right. I initialed it. I said, happy yeah. birthday from dad. That's right. And, it's you not, know, no that, different than a greeting card. Yep. So you cannot $5 really on that thing. get that creepy about technology. I mean, you can't get that creeped out about technologies because greeting cards are that too. I mean, That's it just exactly looks different. Yeah. Once it's functional, once it's socially accepted, you'll go with it. And yeah. of course, this is whole thought experiment is but a metaphor for sex robots. Same thing. Oh, you ain't right? kidding. It's yeah. Same. It's a metaphor for the same thing, and we're probably headed that way. And the first time you heard about it, it was a joke, and it it, it one day will not be. Oh, it'll be a normal part of marital life. I imagine. <laughs> it, how how would you feel if Bridget goes? You know what? I can't do this with you right now, but here's if I could, this is what I would want for you, Matt. And you go, I know. Oh yeah, <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, I mean that's what I'm saying. It's authorized technology initialed by you, and I, we already do that, and we'll continue right. to do it. So the question is, can who can accept it and who can't? And then more importantly, not more importantly, but more specifically, the next question is, when will you accept it? Now that, I believe, is also a fixed number, and it's a percentage number. Yeah. And it, are you in the 99th percentile, the last holdout that eventually accepts X? Right. Or are you one of the early adopters in the first 10%? Or do you, once 50% of people adopt a new thing, do you find it normal too? Because you know, anybody that knows, if you go back and look at new technologies emerging, you always have the pattern where you go, that's stupid. And then eventually you go, what do you mean? It's normal. Now that happens at a different place in relation to other people for everybody. So it's probably relatively consistent. It varies issue to issue, but relatively consistent per person. Some people are always very, very late to get on board and they're resistant to Twitter until they finally get an account. Right. It'll be the same way with authorized conversations, <laughs> sex robots, um, uploading your brain, whatever comes, it'll yeah. it'll be that way. So I like to think of where am I on the early adoption? And I'm not I'm not one that says I'm the first. I don't I'm not interested in being first. Right. So virtual reality, for instance, um, I'm kind of holding out still. I'm waiting for it to actually get really, really good, and then I want, I'm going to really go in. I'm excited about it, but I hadn't bought any Oculus. I hadn't bought any of that stuff. I'm waiting until it's really almost Apple-level mainstream or before, before, somewhere before that. I don't need it to be mainstream. I'll be on the early side, but I think I'm a, kind of a 20% guy. I want to be around 20% on a new technology. I want to be one of the first 15 right. 20% of people in it. Yeah, yeah. I don't need to be the last, but I don't need to be first because so you get you get burnt by that because you get way into something that doesn't pan out. So everybody should set their own threshold. You want to be more conservative or more aggressive with when you're going to be a technological adopter. And it's kind of a, a, a risk, a gamble. You just kind of decide where you're at, but you should be aware of it. Okay, folks, you've heard me talk about Hems so much. They've been a sponsor of this podcast and a really cool company to work with for a long time, and they help men look better. Did you know that 66% of men start to lose their hair by age 35? And once you've noticed that thinning hair, it can be too late. The best way to prevent more hair loss is to do something about it while you still have some. It's time to get a handle on those precious locks of yours. You know what I'm talking about. You love your hair. You know that. You don't want a bald spot to pop up or anything like that. Seriously. Uh, 4Hems is a one-stop shop for hair loss, skin care, sexual wellness for men. They are the solution to your question about what to do about that head of hair of yours. Hems is helping guys to be the best version of themselves 
uh, with licensed physicians and FDA-approved products to help treat hair loss. No snake oil, pills, or gas station counter supplements. Prescription solutions backed by science is what Hims is about. Uh, no more awkward in-person doctor's visits. 4HIMS connects you to real doctors online, which could save you hours complete and keeps it completely confidential and discreet. Answer a few quick questions, and a doctor will review, and if they determine it's right for you, they can prescribe you medication to treat hair loss that is shipped directly to your door. So here's what I want you to do. Order now. Our listeners can get started with the HEMS Complete Hair Kit for just $5 right now while supplies last and subject to doctor's approval. And you can even go to the website for more details and safety information. Uh, this could cost you hundreds of dollars at, if you went to the doctor or a pharmacy somewhere else. So go to 4 slash badchristian. That's F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash badchristian. 4 com slash badchristian. It's going to be really uh, crazy. <laughs> it's going to be wild when you think about uh, philosophy and psychology when technology gets that advanced. Don't you think? Oh, like, yeah. like what, what, what will it mean to not communicate the same way you have at, at people for generations and generations have in the past with their spouses even, if there were, even will be spouses? And what does that mean about relationship will it be actually closer if Could there it be will more? be spouses there, uh, you slide that in there what are you <laughs> there ain't gonna be spouses i don't believe that i, I tell my kids you're, constantly you're most my, excited about the technological my, advance my kids, to no spouse my kids are talking about boyfriends and girlfriends i was like y'all ain't gonna have that you're gonna get married what in the world <laughs> are you not? thinking they ain't gonna Why do not? that it has this guy's gone Good well, Lord, ain't nobody, ain't nobody 15 or 20 years from now going to go, yeah, we're going to get married forever. <laughs> that ain't happening. Trust Wait, me. So we get a few extra screens and Air, AirPods and you're ready to get rid of pair bonding? Yeah, I'm telling you, <laughs> that is what is going to happen. I believe it fully. There is no chance. years? That, marriage is antiquated and outdated <laughs> and just uh, over. I promise wow, you. Wow, what a grizzled 40-year-old husband and, you are. And, hey, I'll even I'll do a little caveat here. You might have closer, better relationships because that is gone. Oftentimes, marriage is really bad because, oh, we got to get married or marriage is the thing. And that's what you got to save and all the stuff. And you don't work on each other or yourselves and all the stuff. It's a it's a big bunch of it's a big mess. I'm telling you. <laughs> nobody, OK, out of everything, is is marriage the success thing for, hum, for no, humans? No, is it the I'm, thing I'm, we, you, we, we place our flag on? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. So I'm telling you, I know, whatever that is, I understand you got to keep creating and making babies and, and uh, loving each other and doing all that stuff. But I don't know if marriage is the uh, way we facilitate that. It seems it seems pretty broken. I think there's got to be something a little That's bit hilarious. better. Sorry, gay people. You finally got to be able to get married. I know. I stole it from gay people. It's all the gay people. of the movie. They can't have nothing. As soon as they get gay, as soon as they get married, <laughs> yes. that's it. Shut it down. I'll tell you right that's from it. the, I'll tell you, stole it right from the gay people. I'm sorry. I, I, I really did believe when I was like, no, you don't want marriage. Gay folks, <laughs> <laughs> that's don't. You have everything. Yeah. You, you, you had so, it all. Oh, God. If I was, I'm so jealous. And then, you know. That, that's right. I think it might, uh, we might have to go to a non-work-based economy soon, where it's all UBI. In which case, we will have to apologize to the women for finally getting into the workforce, and there's no more work to do. <laughs> Same thing. <laughs> Sorry, guys. I, we should have got on that earlier, but turns out right. there's not really and jobs that's exactly, anymore. Anyway, that's so. exactly what men will do. Hey, yeah. 
Universal yes. Basic Income. I, I said, mean, I'm going to stay here today. You go on. I'm glad you are a CEO. Exactly. Yeah, right. So we're just the yeah. white men just moving on. Yeah, just just, sitting just going in the house. plugging into the upload. Y'all yeah. have fun. You can be That's CEO right. of whatever you want, married to how whatever it is. Yeah. You name yeah. it. Do whatever. Go you for want. it. Yeah. We're going into VR to play Madden <laughs> with our UBI. <laughs> okay, but in the meantime, there are a lot of good jobs out there, folks. And if oh, yeah. you are missing out. If you're an employer or you're they're just it's hard sometimes to find good people. I'm telling you. I, I mean, we've lived it. We've owned several businesses now and it's hard to find good people. When you get a good I person, still, you, we haven't you even hold found on one good employee still. There's, there's, there's never been one. I mean, not, not one. one. I dare anybody that they even say a word right now that they were a great. Employee. Hey. <laughs> Back to ZipRecruiter. I wish we could have found one anyway. We're just joking. Reva's awesome. And if you want to find somebody awesome like Reva, I'm telling you, that's what ZipRecruiter does. It, hiring is just a slow process. Um, and Cafe Altura's COO, Dylan Miskowitz, Miskowitz, what a good last name, needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but he was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them for you. It's, tech, it's technology, identifies people with the right experience and invites them to apply to your job so you get qualified candidates fast. That's what I'm saying. This is why it's easy, uh, user-friendly. It's so awesome. Dylan just posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by how quickly he had great candidates apply. So with results like that, it's no wonder that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. So if you want to... Find out more and see why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at our website, ZipRecruiter.com slash bad Christian. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash bad Christian. That's B-A-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, all one word, ZipRecruiter.com slash bad Christian. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Indeed, it is. Okay, so we're trying to get our guest on the ringer here. His name is Jacob Evans. Now, Jacob fits this show really well because he's been, he covers a lot of topics we talk about. He's got mental health issues he's been through. He's been an opiate addict and he grew up in conservative West Virginia. So, seems like a good fit. Let's see if we can get him on. Oh, yeah. All right. Thank you, Toby. And we're trying to get our guest on here to get him on the blower. He should be joining us momentarily, but I'll tell you about him. His name is Jacob Evans and he grew up in West Virginia, Christian household, like me, like you, a lot of people here, and then has been through the ringer with mental illness and the opiate crisis, which, you know, he was an opiate addict himself. He became a lawyer. Now he works in recovery and all that stuff. Such a relevant issue. Uh, not often talked about, and this is where we talk about stuff like that. So let's see if we can get him on. All right, Jacob, thank you for joining the show. I, I told everybody what why you're on. Uh get a little bit of your background, but I basically kind of want to go through your story and see what's interesting because it, it covers a bunch of topics that come up on the show and in public discourse a lot, and some of them are harder to talk about than others. But uh, you grew up in West Virginia, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I think I read that in West Virginia, nobody has jobs and everybody's issued opiates 
And that's yeah, totally that's, the norm, right? Yeah, that's what they hand out door to door at yeah. like Halloween and stuff. It's like trick or treating. <laughs> is that is uh, that where no, the story I mean, starts? There's there's different areas of West Virginia for sure that um, are more affluent than others. Um, in certain areas, they're certainly struggling with the opioid crisis a lot more um, than other ones are. But safe to say, I grew I grew up in a household where it was expected to to get a job by by 16, and so not not everyone follows that that archetype, but. <laughs> I can see where, where people might say that. Well, tell us about your, you know, where you came from and your, you know, your family of origin and, and go. Yeah, from there. of course. So I grew up in Martinsburg, West Virginia, which is in the Eastern Panhandle. So excuse the hand language, but it's uh, right here in terms mm-hmm. of the shape of the state. So that's really close to DC and Baltimore. Uh, my dad was a dentist whenever I was growing up. So he was a family practitioner. My mom was a presidential appointee. Um, underneath the Bush administration, and then now as a presidential appointee underneath the Trump administration. So I grew up, um, you know, with what uh, kind of what does she do? What kind of work is that? That's kind of interesting in itself. What was that again? What kind of work does she do? That's kind of interesting. So in itself. she she started off in um, like the department. Of, well, actually, she started off in in, in the Park Service, and then eventually um, started doing stuff with um, Department of Justice, Department of Energy. Um, and then office of management and budget, she was in charge of the nation's, like all the nation's IT. And like now what she does is she helps us prepare for stuff like natural disasters, um, EMPs, things along those lines. So she's like an, wow. an expert in the nation. Wow. That's interesting. That's a whole other topic though. Yeah, but that gives a us a lot to live a, up to. Yeah. It gives us yeah. a grip of the environment that you grew up in though. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, so from growing up, it was, um, I thought that I was always going to take over my dad's dentistry practice. That's what I thought growing up and then caught the music bug whenever I was about 12 years old. Um, Weezer was my very first favorite band. And uh-huh. so they were what inspired me to want to play guitar. And so I started doing that and um, was like one of the youngest groups. I had a band of my sister, my cousin, and a really good friend of mine. And we were like 13 years old playing local shows with kids that were 18, 19 years old. So I was getting exposed to some things within that scene whenever I was like pretty young, primarily things like um, THC and things along those lines where I wasn't always, um, you know, I wasn't always aware of what I was being exposed to, but I still was like seeing it at a, at a super young age and it was becoming more normal for me. When you were like 12 or 13, did you call it THC or what'd you call it? <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. You mean this people right in the, backstage or in the, in the alley loading in the older yeah, bands are smoking exactly. weed and stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And like you would, all the older kids, that's what they would be doing, drinking, smoking weed. Um, and that's what, you know, it, it was just normal to see it and then participating in it whenever I was probably like 14, 15. But I was also... And, and also, sorry to interrupt you, but also you're saying, and this is the same... Uh, some of the story relates with me too. just uh, you didn't have any experience with it and nobody, there was no education with it or safety or anything like that. You're just like, Oh, cool. People are smoking weed. I want to be cool. I should smoke weed. Right. Exactly. And it was, um, I I think I was always searching for my spot to fit in and like feel normal. And because I was younger than everybody else, it's like, I'm I'm trying to fit in and like, right. Long here. And so I think that that had a lot to do with it as well. Yeah, for sure. So you started, so your, your gateway drug was weed and probably some alcohol or something like that, but you started doing that. And then what, uh, you, you followed music. Yeah. I mean, I, um, what, what wound up happening was I was in jazz band whenever I was younger, I was in, um, 
like show choir. So I, I wanted to get my voice trained. So I was doing show choir stuff. And whenever um, I was in high school, I was also a student athlete, but all the while like this, you know, this partying scene was going on around me. And as I was getting older, um, I was fitting in and I started playing yeah. shows with like older people. So I was youngest guy in an older band. And then, um, so they all graduated to other things as well. And so by the time that I um, graduated high school, I mean, I was exposed to cocaine, ecstasy, LSD, um, a, a lot of this stuff. And I waited until after high school to do it. But um, how, so when you say you're in the party scene, how, how often were you partying? Because it also seems like you were doing a, like it seems like you were very functional at doing other stuff, too, though. Like if you were doing drugs and stuff like that, how were you able to maintain that? Because you student athlete, choir, bands, popular, all that stuff. And you were still like just secretly doing this or just within your friend group or something like that? Uh, it's, um, you know, when you want to talk about functioning and like how that develops, it gets it gets even more crazy than that. Um, I, um, I think that I, I was just good at, at compartmentalizing certain things and like knowing when to turn it on versus turning it off. But I mean, I was smoking weed probably every day from the time that I was 16 on and then drinking and, and partying on the weekends. Uh, so like I, I, I had some sort of structure set up where I, you know, I, to, for whatever reason, I thought that that was normal. And then when I went into college, that's kind of where, where things took a turn. I, I dropped out of, um, where did you go to college? In, uh, say it again. Where'd you go to college? Uh, I started off at Shepherd university cause I was pre-accepted into dental school. So that's a small mm-hmm. school in West Virginia. So I was pre-accepted into, into dental school at age 18 and thinking that's what I was going to do. And then I was also, um, at the time in a band called the Shire Waits and, we were picking up traction and doing some stuff um, locally around that area. And so I decided I was going to drop out and give music like a full, a full push. And so I dropped out um, after my first year and just solely focused on music for about a year. Got wound up getting my recording engineering degree and doing things along those lines, but or certification, sorry. But what wound up happening was during that year, because I didn't have that structure set in place, the partying started happening way more frequently, like almost every single day. Cause if it wasn't playing a show or doing practice or writing music, um, we thought that we needed chemicals in order to help induce right. more creativity. And so that's kind of like where a lot of the stuff really started spiraling for me. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody was doing, is that the other problem that, that kind of led to this? Like all your, your friend group was all doing drugs. It's, it's actually really interesting. Um, so my bass player, um, did, I did, my other guitarist did, um, and then our keyboardist did, but the drummer never did. And he was my, he still to this day is my best friend and he, he never did any of that stuff. But Sounds y'all did. boring. <laughs> Sounds like he had no fun. He must've yeah. been, I mean, like, I'm surprised he stuck with y'all. <laughs> I know. Yeah. It seems like he would have gotten out of there. Yeah. I mean, he, um, I mean, again, like we started playing, I started playing guitar to him playing drums. Like that's how I learned how to play guitar. Mm-hmm. And we would just, we would just cover songs back and forth. And, um, so he, he, to this day, is my best friend. What wound up happening was we were on our way to um, Baltimore one night for a show, and I refused to pull over um, for somebody to use the bathroom. I was like, we got to get there on time for sound check. So I like refused to pull over, and then um, the bass player wound up peeing his pants. And you, you throw like all that other stuff on top of it. Um, it just was a, was a bad culmination of things. And so when the band wound up breaking up after that, the only two people you broke up over the P incident. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> that broke the camel back. He, he had like these um, awesome jeans that he was wearing that he really wanted to wear. And, and then like he peed his pants. He's like, I can't go out there with pee pants. And I was like, well, you know, I have uh, gym shorts in the back. So he, he was not happy about that. And that was what wound up being the straw that broke the camel's back. But Nick, who's the drummer, he and I stayed tight the whole time. And when the band broke up, we still played music together and he wound up deciding that he wanted to go to law school. And so that's what inspired me to get back into school and to take that route. So he and I have stayed tight like this whole time, mm-hmm. but that, you want to talk about like pr- productive um, and still managing an addiction. Like that's, that's where I would say that like it was kind of. Well, how bad was the addiction at this point? Like when you say it, when you say addiction, you mean you needed it or it was, it was just a, a crutch or what? I would say it was substance abuse at that point, not necessarily addiction. I wouldn't say that I, I like I chemically needed it in order to feel well, but I would yeah. say that I was definitely preoccupied with it and using th- and using things more than recreational. And like what? Well, give a list at this time. You, your band is over. You're going to start law school. And what drugs are you using pretty regularly? I'm not starting law school yet. I, ha- I still have to complete my undergraduate. But before I went in back to school, I was using um, cocaine pretty frequently. Um I was using LSD and I was just about to stop doing that. So LSD pretty frequently. Um, I was using ecstasy pretty frequently and then THC almost daily. How did you afford this being in a band that's breaking up and not, yeah. and all that stuff? How, do, how I always, I do always wonder that. How do you get your drugs when, when people tell me stuff like this? Without uh, going too far down that rabbit hole. Um, when you are, when you feel like that, that you want to do something to support a lifestyle, like you get pretty creative, especially because, um, you know, I'm not unintelligent. So I, um, the way that I did it was, it was, it was a lot of trading. Like I knew a guy who, um, was really, 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 really big into psychedelic mushrooms. And I knew that there was like a really small supply of that where I was at. And so it was like a lot of trading back and forth and like capitalizing on certain things and a lot of stuff in the festival scene, there would be a lot of access to stuff there too. So you, uh, maybe, uh, sold some drugs too, maybe, or something. Uh, like I that. can't yeah. confirm or deny any of them. I, I hear that. I hear that. So. <laughs> sure. But I, that, that makes a lot of sense. I guess I didn't think about that route. You, you get some for yourself and then you can pass it off to other people too, maybe if they're interested or not. But so, yeah, so you, uh, you get, so let's fast forward here a little bit. You're in law school, which is, and so let me pause for one second. Your parents, are they at all concerned? Do they know anything? Like you like you said, your mom's so high up in government and, and successful. Your dad's successful. Are they sensing any of this? And and did you want to be a lawyer or was this to satiate them a little bit about, hey, I'm going to be okay or what? Yeah, I, I think that the, the way that it worked in terms of that was that um, – because I was always doing so well. So I, during my undergraduate at West Virginia University, I wound up becoming um, a student governor. I was a highly decorated national model United Nations delegate. Um, I was dean's list. I was academic chair of a fraternity. Um, I was super involved within the university, like w- really well known. And I think because all of those things were going on. And um, at this point I was like managing a suit store um, while <laughs> managing this addiction. I think that because all that stuff was going on, it never really crossed anybody's mind that there was anything going on other than recreational use, like normal college behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't have admitted to anything at that point either. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's, 
this story is really crazy because it seems like you were just wide open with everything. Like you were going to go full force into academic academia and uh, music or schoolwork or whatever. Like, is that is that just your personality? Like, I mean, it's I guess maybe what I'm getting at here, it seems like it, it, do you think of yourself as an addictive personality and you're going to go all the way no matter what it is? It, it, it might be cocaine or it might be being the student governor. Like you do you just give yourself all the way? That's 100% what it is. Um, what, what I've realized now, four, four years on the flip side, is that it, it doesn't start with substances. Like That's not where, where this line of thinking starts with. Um, for me, in my, in my journey, it was about being uncomfortable inside of my own headspace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So anything that I could do that would take me outside of that, um, mm-hmm. whether it was music, whether it was um, academics and getting tacking more stuff on, um, whatever it was that was going to keep me occupied, that's what I was going to do to not think what all was going through my head because I just didn't deal with emotions or anxieties or anything like that very well. Why don't um, you think you dealt with those things well? I think that, if I'm being honest with you guys, um, I think that there's a huge disconnect within my generation where we had access to the internet, um, handheld devices. And so, you know, there's the argument that's made that we're, you know, the most connected that we've ever been. I mean, you know, we're probably in three different locations right now, multiple re- locations, but all able to connect um, through through technology. But I call it pseudo connected because you wind up losing the skills to be able to connect interpersonally with people. Mm-hmm. And so I think that I just I just didn't have that that ability. I was I was lost trying to find myself and like looking through yeah. anything in order to do it. And back to the original question, like, am I an addictive personality? I think I'm a I was ingrained with a motto in my family that hard work brings good luck. So I think that for me, it's, it's a mixture of that way that my brain, the way that I wired my brain along with the, th- the fact that I thought that I was working hard. Mm-hmm. So those things in tandem, I think did lead to a super um, addictive, like OCD style um, mentality. Yeah. I feel like all these things are pretty related. Uh, you know, f- people that are on, that, that have substance problems, there's a big spectrum of it, but one that I notice a lot or have noticed a lot or encountered a lot is highly motivated people, highly creative people uh, that are often very talented. And, and there's something that makes sense about that. It, uh, if you wanted to go all the way, I think there's research into stuff like the novelty-seeking gene, like people that, that mm-hmm. is a genetic predisposition to need more stimulus, If you know, mm-hmm. and, and that's going to mm-hmm. play out in, in a lot of ways. And then... You know, if there's some other problem or deficit or trauma, it makes or or sometimes just the drugs have enough gravity themselves to eventually, you know, weigh you down or be more stimulating than the other things you can do. But I'm not surprised to hear that some of the most functional and brilliant people I've known are, you know, are very similar. So just anybody uses drugs a little bit, but you do everything more, and so mm-hmm. then there's higher liabilities and and stuff there. So that that I don't think that's very strange at all. Yeah. I mean, they call it, um, one thing that it's called is a reward system. So when you're sick, it's a reward system disadvantage, um, which means that like when a stimulus hits, I register like a loss or Mm -hmm. when I'm sick, I would register a loss at like a level 100, something that normal people would register it as a level two. And then the same thing can be said for wins. So Mm -hmm. if I experience like a minor win, some people would just register that as like a one or a two, but I register it as a 10. And so I'm always looking to register higher and higher and higher. And like you said, it's like that, um, 
you know, that just increases the, the win ratio so much, mm-hmm. at least you think it does in the beginning. So, I mean, it's, you know, you can flip that on its head and make it a reward system advantage, which is what I believe that I've been able to do. Um, but when you're sick, it's, it's easy to weigh yourself down and get caught and get lost in like what you perceive as like the, the greater valued loss versus a greater valued win. So yeah. that formula is someone with high loss aversion. Mm-hmm. So you don't like to lose anything. It's exceedingly painful to lose something. And yeah. then also just a high horsepower. And I yeah. would say I use horsepower in a general way there, but you can imagine if you have some car with a bunch of horsepower, it's simply harder to control. It's capable of more, mm-hmm. but it's, it is more dangerous if of you're course. not handling it. So it's easy to spin out, hit the ditch, whatever. Yeah, of course. And, and um, you know, one thing that I didn't talk about that I think also made me a little bit more susceptible was that prior to to all of this stuff, whenever I was like maybe like 10 or 11 years old, I wound up going to a Catholic school mm-hmm. um, for fourth grade through eighth grade. And when I was there, um, I wound up asking a question to my religion teacher that really irritated him. I asked why the why the Bible had quotation marks um, in it if like it's not a direct conversation. And mm-hmm. the earliest account um, of Jesus was like nearly 60 years after his death. And he didn't like that question. And so um, I got kicked out of religion class for that. And when that happened, I like just averted everything away from any sort of moral codex. And it just became more about like what feels good, not necessarily like what is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, that, so that was a fundamental rift with you and morality and religion. Like you took that as, oh, this is bullshit then. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. yeah I was like, if I can't ask a question to understand, right. like, and he's not at a point to, to, to be somebody who's willing to disciple somebody, then like, why should I listen to what he's trying to teach me? I, I yeah. couldn't agree more. That is one of the things that I think is just the worst, worst thing that a kid can have happen to him is to be in the presence of an authority or, or a powerful adult that has whatever autonomy that you can see that they they don't they don't got what you thought they had. You thought they yeah. knew something or you thought they cared or you thought they respected you. It turns out mm-hmm. they don't. They just happen to have power. And therefore and that's just one person. Mm-hmm. But that can turn you off to the whole to the whole thing. That's just incredibly I, I remember that type of feeling like, uh-oh, this is an adult yeah. that's in control and they don't they might not like me, they don't respect me and they don't know what they're doing. Like mm-hmm. I, so whatever it is that they, whatever they come from, I, it must be bullshit. Yeah. And I think I associated everything with that. I was like, if I'm in a classroom setting and I can't ask a question, because that's, Mm. I mean, one, I'm like pretty cerebral. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm like pretty cerebral. So if I can't ask a question to understand and I can't ever, I was somebody who I felt like I needed to understand before I could believe. And so I was trying to understand. And when um, I was in a classroom setting and I was just, you know, just disqualified and discouraged, I was, mm-hmm. I was, I just completely averted away from it after that. And then that, that increases outsider mentality and feeling, you know, like then you start to yeah. think, oh, I, there's something wrong with me. Everybody else is fine, but I'm just one of the people that's not like everybody. So then, you know, you're more susceptible to other <laughs> outsider things that are necess- not necessarily good. Right. Okay. Sorry to interrupt for a second, but I have to tell you about something very important. And that is, I got the message for you. You don't have to deal with the hassle of going to the post office. Post office is a wonderful thing. We got to mail stuff. It does a good job. However, it's a hassle to go there. And that's why you need stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. And it's exactly that. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and it saves you money. They got discounts and 
discounts that you can't even get at the post office, in fact. Stamps.com brings all of the amazing services of the U.S. post office right to your computer. And that doesn't matter if it's a small office sending invoices or maybe you're an online shop and you ship out all your products when you sell them. Maybe you got a warehouse sending thousands of packages a day. Well, Stamps.com is still the way to do it. You simply use your computer and you print official U.S. postage 24-7 for any letter, any package, any class of mail, anywhere you want to send it. So once your mail's ready, you just hand it to your mail carrier or drop it in the mailbox right there. It's that simple. You get five cents off of every first-class stamp and up to 40% off of priority mail. So it's kind of a no-brainer. If you go to the post office, you should stop. You can still use the post office and all their services with stamps.com. It's a no-brainer. Saves you time and money. 700,000 small businesses already use it. And right now, our listeners can get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. So just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Bad Christian. That's stamps.com, enter Bad Christian. And Jacob, you said you've referred to it several times as being sick or sickness. When did it get really bad? You wrote us and, and you talked about opiates. So what, where, how did it get really bad and what, was, what did really bad in your life look like with drugs? Yeah, so um, I was student body vice president at the time. Um, so I had moved on from student governor to student body vice president, managing a suit for my first year of law school. And I was on um, a National Model United Nations trip, which is something where schools from all over the world come together to simulate um, a Model United Nations conference. And while I was on that conference, um, somebody introduced me to opiates. And I, I didn't know what it was at the time. I saw somebody crushing up like this little blue pill. And uh, he asked me if I wanted to try it. And for whatever reason, me on my high horse, I was like, no, the only thing I put up my nose would be cocaine. Like that was like, that meant oh, that I was somebody. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like, sorry. No, the only thing I put up my nose is cocaine. And then for whatever reason, I've always had an affinity to, uh, to, to smoking. And so when, uh, when he said that, cause it's, you know, my whole addiction started with, with weed. So he was like, you can actually smoke these. And my eyes, I, I can like almost remember the feeling now. It's like my eyes, I felt like just lit up and I was like, really, uh, can you show me? So he showed me how to do it. And then I followed right behind him. And then the minute that I tried that, it was like for the first time ever, everything that I was trying to do. So keep in mind, like I said before, I was trying to keep out of my head because it was always going a million miles a minute yeah. and everything just slowed down. And yeah. I stopped worrying about like what the next step was or what I needed to do. And I was able to like, just be in the present moment um, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. That's what happened. And that yeah. brought a certain sense of solace to me for the first time ever. Like the, like a weight came off my chest and that was how I got introduced to opiates. And then over the course of that trip, I continued to do it almost every day. And I had like done these trips a million times. You work like 13 hours a day you're in New York. So, you know, you're going to bars and stuff after you're done. And so when I was finished with it, I, w- I thought I was feeling really tired when we were coming back on the bus, but the feeling kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And when I started looking up the symptoms, I like realized I was going through opiate withdrawal. And this had only been like three, three nights, four days. Mm-hmm. And so I was physically addicted from, from that point forward. Wow. And I knew that I didn't want to feel like that anymore. So from that point forward, I, I never went another day without doing it for about uh, two years. Mm-hmm. 
Good Lord. And you smoked you it. Knew that, it. That though. was your, yeah. And that was your way. Yeah. I, um, again, I don't, I don't know what it was. It made me think that I was like some sort of like, um, high, high caliber addict, but I was like, Oh no, I'm not going to do anything other than smoke these things. Like, cause like that's the classy way. And, I, and I'm not going to do heroin because I don't know what's in it. If it's a pill, then I know that it's coming from somebody. Um, but do you know you're an, a real addict at that point? You did know that. Oh, it, there was, you, know you needed it. Yeah. When I, when I looked up those symptoms, it was like, I, I'm on this train until, un, until the wheels fall off, like before with other stuff. So yeah, but okay, point. right there is the big, that's, that, that really is the big moment because that's the moment where you go, oh, crap, I didn't want to get addicted. I better knock it off. I didn't, yeah. I'm, I, I'm already in the withdrawal. Let me get on through this. I'll never touch that shit again. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, one, that's one thing you could have decided at that point. But you said it was it, it, the feeling that you must have experienced. It was just, it wasn't, you, you know, you knew you were on the path till it was going to be rock bottom or ride it out. Like you, that was clear to you? Here, here's the thing. So again, um, going back to reward system advantage or disadvantage. Um, the first time I try to keep in mind, I've only been doing this for, for four days at this point. So the first time I ever did it, it gave me exactly what I felt like I was looking for my entire life by getting involved in all these things. Mm-hmm. Um, for the first time ever, I was able to breathe and be in my own company and being my own head. And so like, that was a huge win, right? It was like, and although it came in the form of a chemical, it was like, that's what I've been looking for. And then on the flip side, four days later, it's like, now I have this really crappy feeling, but does it outweigh, does that really crappy feeling outweigh this feeling? It's like, I knew, here's what's interesting about people who suffer from addiction or substance abuse disorder is that I don't think that fear of negative consequence is a positive motivator to, to move forward. Right. Mm-hmm. It's like, right. If that were the case, then we wouldn't see people continuously relapsing, continuously overdosing, continuously winding in and out of jail. I don't think that the fear of negative consequences is what does it because of that reward system advantage versus disadvantage. And that's I think for it's everything. The positive expectancy of something better is what motivates somebody to get out of that hole. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know anything better at that point. The best feeling I ever had was four days ago when I stopped feel- feeling the way that I felt for my whole life. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that must be true about everything, just uh, food or whatever. It's, I mean, we oh. know things are bad for us. Whether whether or not they be opiates is, yeah. is just right. a more extreme, it, you know, an extreme relief than from extreme withdrawal and pain. But it's not that different when you eat chips. Yeah, I think I think that we see it within our society a lot where it's um, we're, we're taking this like scare tactic approach. And when I say we, I mean like the nation in general takes like the scare tactic approach and you just don't see it like necessarily turning into to much of a movement of anything. Mm-hmm. What does is like the positive expectancy for something better. It's that's when you see people get behind a rally or a movement. It's like things can be better when we do this. And so then now people are working towards a goal mm-hmm. rather than working away from the problem. Do you see yeah. what I mean? Instead of scare mm-hmm. people, like if you do drugs, this bad thing will happen to you and you'll be, you know, it's not that that doesn't stop people. So if, it's like, well, it'll be better tonight. <laughs> or this will be fun, or I'll be accepted. I mean, what are you, 16 years old, and you're supposed to really believe all that negative stuff when you don't see it actually happening? I mean, and you, yeah, and you then, can't picture a positive reason not to do drugs. You can't yeah, and think the fe- of one. And the feeling is great. Yeah, and when you think about yeah. the dichotomy of how my brain worked at the time, um, again, authority, I viewed that as like, no, no. Like the guy uh-huh. who, who, I, who I went to to ask a question, like I, I just developed this um, authoritative complex like the like the whole time. So after that, it was like, it didn't matter what people told me if, if I did this thing and they said that like, um, it was going to be good or it was going to be bad. I, I, I didn't care what they You've said. You've already disregarded that. 
Yeah. And it's the same people telling you, you better not do drugs because you'll die. Or the same people mm-hmm. that says, you better not masturbate or you go to hell. Yeah. Like you get struck by lightning. You're like, well, I guess not then. You know. Yeah. And it's like, I'm going to have to figure it out for myself for better or for worse. And that was, that was just the way that, that it kind of played out at that time. And, you know, you asked like, how, how bad did it get? And so um, something that's, that's really interesting is that I remember I couldn't even um, sit through an entire class. I would have to get up at least three or four times in the middle of the class to go make sure that I was getting a fix in between. So um, my, my drug of choice was Percocet 30s. And I would like, I wouldn't do the whole thing at once if I was at school. So I would hit a little bit, like go to the bathroom, hit a little bit of it. And then I had had to do that three times to keep like my brain. Wow. So around that time I stopped being student body vice president because my term had ended. Um, I also stopped working. The excuse was, was that I wanted to focus on law school. Um, So I had all these things that at one point were kind of keeping me together again, like the structure was kind of keeping things together for me. Mm-hmm. And once those things fell out, um, the the wheels just started falling off of off of all the cars. And mm-hmm. so when I started my my second year of law school, um, it was literally like go to class, use in between, get out of class, use all day, figure out ways, creative ways to to try to make sure that I could use because at this point it was becoming a struggle um, to finance my addiction. So I was um, lying to my parents about things that were going on with me, um, like saying that I had car trouble every other week, which, you know, there's only so many times you can replace your brakes. And so when, when that kept happening, um, I think that at the very end of everything, what, what made it worse was that I realized I like look over and I'm actually, I'm with my little sister and she and I have been perpetuating this habit. So that's one piece that I didn't tell you guys. And so when I look over at her and I see this thing going on, it's like, I I realize that I want to try to get sober. And then at that point, when you realize that you can't, um, on your own, that's like the most defeating part. I think about addiction in general is that, um, just the overwhelming sickness that happens when you actually want to make that effort is, it's, it's one, it's terrifying. Um, two, I'd say it's really um, crushing in terms of somebody who believed themselves at the time to be like capable of doing anything they put their minds to. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a really crushing blow to try and do this and not be successful multiple times because um, I had succeeded at everything I, I ever wanted to really try to do. So if I put my heart and soul and mind into it, then I, I was able to, to accomplish it. But when it came to trying to get sober, and I couldn't do it. I think that for somebody like me, that was the biggest crush. So that's like how bad it got was being defeated. And so at that point where you, you it wasn't so much partying anymore, were you not using the other drugs or it's just, you just became doing the Percocet, you know, r- r- the whole time? It's, 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 yeah. As soon as I got um, into my second year of law school, it, it was just exclusively using to stay well. It was no longer fun. Right. Um, I didn't even have that, that feeling anymore that I talked about during the first four days, Right. what wound up happening was that then you're just fighting to try to, to not get sick. Like you're like, that's like the whole, that's what your whole entire um, existence becomes about. It's wow. just really trying to um, stay well enough to function. Mm-hmm. And so is mm-hmm. this, is it also, you're also uh, isolating or, or getting farther and farther from social things? 
Oh yeah, definitely. I, um, I mean, it was literally from, I waited to the very last minute. Sometimes I was even late getting into class. So I'd wait to the last minute to go in. I would sit at the back of the class. Um, I would still get called upon. And, um, there's an interesting story about how I wound up realizing that I really wanted to get sober and make an effort for it. But, um, I was still participating in class and stuff, um, and, and doing pretty and doing pretty well in school. But what wound up happening was that, um, it was literally class, home, use, class, home, use, class, home, use, and sometimes mm-hmm. using in between. And so your life literally becomes um, surrounded around getting the next, you know, time that you feel better. Like that's that's what your whole existence becomes about. So how about your parents and your <clears throat> and your sober drummer buddy? Were they trying to intervene or aware of this yeah. kind of thing? So my my sober buddy um, kept trying to, to encourage me to hang out with him. Um, but I just would make up excuses about things. So like either I had to study or whatever, and I wasn't studying, but any excuse I could make to not have people see me, that was, mm. that was what I was doing. And so my parents, on the other hand, like my, where I went to school was three hours away. And so they'd be lucky to see me on like Christmas and things like that. So um, when they started hearing from me more and more, I think that they knew something was going on, but they weren't really um, like, they weren't diving too deeply into it as far as what that's concerned. Um, but I knew I was becoming like more, like more and more stuff was becoming apparent that there was something else going on at mm-hmm. this time. So how'd you get help? So in my second year of law school, um, I had this teacher in cyber law and I don't know what possessed her to ask me this one day, but she asked me if I could stay behind in class. She like walked up to me and like left me a note on my desk that said, uh, would you mind staying behind? And I just gave her a thumbs up. And so she, after class was done, I walked over to her and she pulls out this sheet of paper and she's like, Jake, I've been tracking you for the last month. And she's like, I just want to point something out to you. And she goes, tardy, 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 tardy on time, tardy, 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 tardy on time. And then she's like, you understand nuances in the law that even I don't get. She's like, so it has nothing to do with your ability to, uh, to understand things or anything along those lines. She's like, but you're on the borderline of like failing this course because you can't be on time. And she's like, and I'm, I'm noticing that some days you're really on point and other days you're not. And she's like, I'm not insinuating anything, but I just want to know, like, are you okay? And I don't know what it was about that question at that time on that day, but I just saw the path clearly laid out for me. And I knew that it was either I, I keep lying and I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and graduate law school and keep doing all this stuff, or um, I take the path less traveled and, and I accept the help. And so at that time I, um, I made the decision to, to accept the help. And I just spilled it all out right there to her right then. That's the incredible. That's incredible to me. And my interpretation is this, you ran into the one out of a hundred good teachers out there. That's that special person that actually respected, thought about, cared about you. And yeah. you know what I mean? I imagine your parents are real busy. That Those are their teachers like that, that, you know, at the beginning of your stories, that teacher who doesn't have time for you is not interested in your thoughts and is not complimentary to your strengths. And then here you find a teacher that has been paying attention to you and studying you for a month. And that must have really mattered. I, I think that it was, it was definitely that. And I never made that connection before. So thanks. Like that's a really <laughs> good insight. Um, but um, the, the other thing is too, is that like, she was available for the answer. Mm-hmm. Are, are, like, are you okay? Mm-hmm, and I yeah. think that that's something that um, 
you know, not 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 only in my own life, but like I think in, in, a, in a lot of people's lives and in society in general, it's like how often do we ask people like, hey, how are you? Like expecting an, an I'm fine back or, you know, hoping that there isn't a long extended conversation. And I think I knew in that moment that she was available to hear me out. Mm-hmm. And I think that yeah. it was like, you know, it's now or it's never. And she's, you know, she went out on a limb to do this. So, and, you know, she, she doesn't really like know me. So she's not going to judge me on anything. And so yeah. I just, I just laid it all out for her. And then um, again, it was like, when that happened, I was like, I don't know what to do now. Like after I described everything that was going on with me, I was like, so what do I do now? And she's like, well, now we come up with a plan. And she's like, let's go to the Dean's office. And so she marched me right down to the Dean's office. And like, I told the story again. And every, every time I, I was saying it and it was coming out of my mouth, it was becoming easier for me to palate. Um, awesome. that like that, that this is what was going on with me and that I needed help to figure it out. So every time I would say it and, and go through this process, it became easier for me to do it. And so when I told her, I got the same response, like, what can I do to help you? And so we came up with a plan where we were going to put my um, scholastics on hold and I was going to take a break as long as what I needed to go figure out what I needed to figure out. And when I, um, when everything was said and done with the school stuff, I officially withdrew right after my, a week after my birthday, um, which is actually the Saturday is my birthday. And um, when I, my mom was coming up for a home game and so for a football home game. And so when she came up, I don't, you know, I was nervous to tell her of course, but the, you know, again, it just became easier and easier. So I sat her down and I grabbed her by her knees and I was I was like, mom, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm like severely addicted to opiates and I really need help. Mm-hmm. And then it wasn't, you know, 24 hours later, I was in a car back to their home. And then this starts like how, how I actually did get sober, but that's the story of how I decided that I wanted to. Yeah. First, the, the step is just to tell the truth. I mean, for, be ready for help and then tell the truth. It sounds yeah, like. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing that, that, that sucks about it is because I'm not a stupid person, it's like, um, because I, you know, I'm, I, I believed myself to be incredibly intelligent. I wasn't really, really ready to, uh, to listen to what people were going to tell me that I needed to do in order to get sober. I thought I had the answers mm-hmm. when clearly like my, my way of thinking landed me where I was, but, um, I, I was ready to, to make the attempts to make a really solid attempt. I wasn't ready to really do the work at that point. Mm-hmm. No. So you go through recovery and uh, obviously this was the starting point, which I think is, is probably the most valuable uh, part of this whole story is that it, you're right. Like it really does take that first step or none of the other steps will follow. So you, you do that. And uh, just for the sake of time, you sound like you are have gone through recovery. And how long has it been since you've been have, have used opiates? Three years. Wow. That is a long time. And so reco- so the you went. Uh, what did you do? Go to inpatient? Uh, yeah. So I tried to, uh, the first thing I tried to do was, was stay at home and that certainly didn't work. Uh, like we, I think we tried it for about a week and I wound up reverting right back to using again, except in mm-hmm. my parents' home. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, we, we can't help you. We need to, to rely on some experts here. And so we went and um, I did a 30 day inpatient again, wasn't really ready to hear what they had had to say, kept looking at everybody around me. I was like, you know, this dude's been to jail a bunch of times. This guy over here has overdosed and died six times. This person's like 50 years old, 60 years old. 
All you were was tardy to class, right? Yeah, I was like, I, I'm like not like these people at all. So how do I know this is really where I'm supposed to be? Um, so needless to say, I was already justifying reasons as to why I was different. And that's like a really dangerous place to be early in recovery. And so as soon as I got onto the plane, I or right before the plane, I was like, oh, I'm not an alcoholic. I'm an opiate addict, so I can drink. And so I had a, I had a beer as soon as I got to the airport, like right after doing treatment. And as soon as I got back home, it was maybe 10 days. And then I was right back in the same like rigmarole. Yeah. And then the worst that it ever got for, for me was um, doing a copious amounts of, of Percocets during this last little 60 day stretch. And, th- and then I did um, about a thousand dollars a day habit for about Good 10 Lord. days. Good God. And when that happened, um, the bank actually called my mom and was, and told her that, you know, I don't know what your son's doing, but he's spending an, an awful lot, like an absurd amount of money that he um, has never done before. And we think that there might be something going on. And so when that happened, I was handed a plane to like, it was basically like, you need to, you can either go get sober and be homeless wherever this plane ticket's going to take you, or you can be homeless here, but you're not going to like, you're not going to keep coming here and doing this. And so when I didn't have any other options and it can only get better from that point, like, again, like looking towards the positive of it, um, I was like, okay, I need to really make an honest stab, but no matter what it is that people suggest this time, I'm going to do it. And so I went back to the same 30 day treatment center. And then it was suggested that I go into this all male treatment recovery program that was loosely based on Navy SEALs, buds training. They don't use any medication. Um, it's like six months long, high intensity physical training, um, not militant, but like a focus on harvesting the brain's natural pharmacy through physical exercise. Um, I was like, I, I don't really want to do that, but I'm sure that it's like what I probably need. And so I signed up to try to do it. And the first thing that they told me whenever I called in was um, that maybe I wasn't a good fit because I thought that I knew everything. <laughs> and that was the first time I'd ever been denied from something um, like in my life, like again, pre-accepted into dental school, got accepted in law school, all these things. And now I'm being told I'm not a good enough opiate addict to be in this program. Like I wasn't good enough. And so that made me want it and fight for it even more, I think. Yeah. And when I finally got there, I was just at such a point where I, I really realized that like, there's nothing that I'm doing that's making me feel good about myself. And so whatever these people are doing, I could see it written all over their faces, like it's working. And so I'm going to do whatever anybody suggests and I'm just going to see what works and what doesn't. And I'll know based on the results. And so I just dove two feet into it. And six months later, I graduated that program. And two months from then, they asked me to start working in the admissions department, um, which is rare. Normally, you have to have about six months before they'll, they'll let you about a year sober. And so I started working there. And then that's really where I found where I belong, like what I've been searching for my whole life. That's awesome. That's really interesting. Yeah. So what strikes me about your story is it's an outlier story. Um, it's a happy story in that you found it and that you had that teacher and this program and th- mm-hmm. you know those parents, uh, but most most people don't. I, I think your story is the outlier. But first of all, how you get there with this super high energy mind and all that, most people don't have that drive. Uh, a lot of people get there because of trauma or they just have a bad mm-hmm. life and then they find the Percocet from a, I don't know, back surgery and then they get yeah. this mm-hmm. and they don't have what you had. Do you, are you, what do you think about, what are, do you 
know off the top of your head what the statistics are on opiate deaths and addiction and what what is that how do you look at the rest of the population that, that, that deals with yeah this? so i mean this is i think it's i think it's crucial to uh to bring to bring this point up so i mean we know that that systematically over over the course of the you know for our nation that it's one it's called an opiate crisis so we know that the the epidemic is is sweeping the nation my state in particular um, is really suffering from it a lot. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of overprescribing opiate addiction or opiate medications here, and so I don't have the exact on hand, but I do know that there were over uh, 12 overdoses in less than 12 hours in one city, um, which is like pretty absurd. Mm. Um, like overdoses relating in deaths here here in West Virginia. And then on top of that, it's like you see in some of these more metropolitan areas where we're seeing a huge increase. And, and the amount of people that are admitting to o- opiate addiction. So there's a huge mitigation that's happening right now with people that are using like Suboxone treatment or mm-hmm. Vivitrol um, treatment. So these things are mitigating the amount of overdoses that are going on, but it's not um, necessarily mitigating the, the actual issue, which is like treating the addiction itself. And so when you ask like, what's, what's, how do I view the rest of the population? I think that, um, it's it's a dangerous road to go down to be to say that, you know, what I view as traumatic versus what somebody else views as traumatic, um, and, and and you know we don't have time to go into everything that happened within my life and how I personally internalize that and how I view that. Um, ultimately, what it is is that I think that people wind up using for a lot of the same reasons um, or continue to use for a lot of the same reasons, and that's um, a lack of you know self awareness, um, lack of self respect and self love. Um, a lack of self-discipline and ultimately the thing that gets you out of it is is a study of self. So like developing all of those things and and learning to truly love yourself again. And so how do I view the population in general? It's that, um, you know, we all experience the same emotions no matter what the background is. And I think that, you know, the, the certain variables may be different, but ultimately it was because I wasn't happy with who I was. Mm-hmm. And I think that, 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 that that's a commonality that draws all of us together. I hear and you saying so, it, though, a slightly different way. You're saying self-love and self-care. And that is a, you know, a kind of a cultural thing that you hear a lot. It's real positive sounding. But it, what I hear in your story is that part, the personal responsibility and the introspection, mm-hmm. yes. But also outside accountability. It, it sounded like accountability yeah. for your actions was a big part of this. Yeah, I mean, well, community, and so that brings me more more to what, um, just in general, like when my life became enhanced, because getting sober is like, you know, I would say about like a third of the battle. Like, just removing the drugs is one thing. Like, a lot of people are able to to get off of drugs. Um, being able to optimize your life is is a completely different scenario, and it takes a whole different skill set. Mm-hmm. And so, um, community, I think, is one. Um, accountability, whether that be imposed through your community or um, or a moral codex, which I didn't have like my whole life growing up. Um, it, it was taught to me. It's just I rejected it. Mm-hmm. And so for me, like when my life became really enhanced again was whenever um, I was going to harvest in, in Southern California, um, specifically Newport Beach area. And so when I was going there and I kept hearing Greg Laurie speak, it's like I kept feeling um, myself being being like caught, I kept feeling it burning within me. Like I needed to take another another step. And so when I became saved, I think that that's really what um, enhanced my life tenfold. Because then it was like 
now now I know it takes the guessing out of like the out of your morals. It's just like this is this is right and and this isn't. So it just you know f- follow follow things along this pathway, and there's a little bit of room for you to be able to make your own choices. But um, it's just you know that that ultimately like my goal is to is to serve my family. You know to be a sh- to like that's the number one thing. Mm-hmm. That's interesting because now we're in the territory of say I mean. You know, to put the religious piece back in at the end is is a, is an interesting way to tie this up because I I don't think it's un- the opioid and drug crisis and a lot of the other stuffs going on. I don't think it's unrelated to some kind of religious crisis. Uh, that way you say that you rejected the morals. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I I was the same way at an early age. There, I think a lot of people have that story. And then, you know, at, at this point with the way that things are going politically and deconstruction and technology moving on, I think there are a tremendous amount of people who are losing a basic religious structure that gives them morals, whether they're true or not, or you argue, but that's not beside the point. Most people do buy into that stuff and that holds them to some accountability. And the amount of people leaving religion, uh, we, I think there's a ton of honestly negative outcomes that I think are related, for instance, this. So mm-hmm. that, that is kind of interesting. I mean, uh, it's almost a full circle way to look at it. Yeah, I mean it's it, it's it's certainly interesting for for me at least because once once I was willing to to accept like somebody else so I was willing to accept my fellow man's point of view my life got better. I was willing to accept um a mentor's point point of view so like somebody that that I viewed more authoritatively and then I'm willing to help other people. So like now I'm able to help other people but I'm helping them towards what necessarily like just getting off of substances again, I think is like about a third of the battle. The, the rest of it I think is like, how do I help myself to help others to, to leave um, like a lasting legacy. And then like the legacy piece is your family. And it's like, well, if I'm not raising my family in anything, how do I stop? How do I stop the same sick cycle that I went through from happening? Like even, you know, I came up with a, a good background, like supportive parents um, never needed anything. So like, when I look at those things and it still happened to me, that means like, how am I going to prevent it? And like, the only thing that I saw as the answer was raising them with the moral codex. It's the one thing that I rejected. Mm-hmm. And so, and being available as like a teacher to, to actually like help them out with this. I've always been fascinated with the way AA uh, is so, uh, the 12 step program is so, it has a spiritual basis to it. And it seems to execute what the gospel seems like to me in a better way than, than Christians or churches often do, because it leans to something you're saying there, a very much a personal accountability where you lean into your own pain and introspection where you're going to look at yourself accurately. And that's mm-hmm. instead of avoid pain. And a lot of the way people use religion. Uh, and Christianity that drives me crazy is a way to avoid pain or pray this away or pray to, I mean, it's like, it's, a, it's obviously a diversion from doing personal work the way people use religion a lot. And it's, I see recovery in 12 step as something that goes, okay, we're going to start with you. Can you look toward your brokenness and pain and accept it? That, and that's the thing that people are avoiding with drugs a lot um, anyway. I, I wanted to say I had a different perspective on there. I do believe that you did in your early childhood years, got a really good structure that uh, that work ethic or something, which it sounds like even full circle comes around to, hey, you can't do this with the Navy Steel, SEAL type recovery, and you were attracted to that because I don't think it for everybody, for you personally, I can see that. The moral codex that you're talking about, though, doesn't necessarily work for everybody because speaking of the church that you got saved at, 
uh, Harvest, that's where Jared Wilson was a up and coming pastor there and, and just committed suicide. And he was at that church and he had the, the morality aspect, but there was something else missing there that did not, uh, let him st- remain alive. Yeah. And you have, have you have some, things. You, yeah. yeah. So I, I think there is something to be said too. That I think that I believe morality and, and faith and Christianity, religion, all, all of it. Uh, can help you there, but I I would say it isn't a catch all because even in the situations where you have that that you can trust in, there's no doubt in my mind that Jared Wilson was a Christian that believed Jesus could save him and his family and everybody. It still lets you down at a certain point if if there aren't certain structures in place. And I really think it sounds like in your whole story, one of the best structures that you had is your parents said, "Hey." You work hard and good. You make your own luck and good things will happen. And that almost seems like it came back around full circle, even with your recovery of, wait a minute, if I work really hard at this, I can make, I can put myself in a good position. And then that's what, why that recovery worked the best as opposed to other ones. I don't disagree with, with what all you said at all revolving around, um, morality, not being a catch all. And now I was fortunate enough to be able to to see Jared speak a handful of times. Um, and his was actually one of the, one of the, sermons that I felt like, uh, or not sermons, but one of the things that actually like um, spoke to me like the most, but when it, when it comes down to it, it's, it's a piece of the pie, but not the whole thing. So one thing at, at Treehouse that a lot of people um, that we subscribe to, so Treehouse is the, the Navy SEAL style program that I went through, is that we believe that there's a recipe for healthy living and that recipe for healthy living, like it's just one component of, yeah. right? it's not like the whole thing. And one part that's extremely vital is, is connection. Um, emotional intelligence, which is like all the stuff I was talking about, about self-awareness, things along those lines, um, physical activities, another huge component, like all these things all need to be working together in tandem in order to support a healthy lifestyle or the best outcome possible. Yeah. Um, yeah, for sure. For me as an individual personally, um, I've, I just found that um, you have to have some sort of sense of morality in some sense, whether that be through, through a church or through an AA program um, or whatever you want to call it, mindfulness meditation, like whatever it is that you need in order to feel connected to something bigger than yourself. Um, I think that that's a vital piece because when you realize the fragility of what it is that you have, then you're, you're, you're willing to do anything I think in order to protect the sanctity of that and yeah. to really make sure that like you're, you're only enhancing it. And so, you know, what happened to, to Jared, you know, my heart goes out to his, to his wife and his kids. Like, you know, that's, that's a huge tragedy. And ultimately I think that, um, you know, what, what winds up happening is, is that some other part or piece of the puzzle wasn't necessarily operating. And so, you know, it's like a, it's like a car. If, if one of the wheels is, is messed up and like, you know, you're not going to go very far. All four wheels need to be on the ground moving at the right, at the right speed, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I do think it's a uh, in turn. I think you're using the word morality, and I'm I think I'm looking at it. And it's probably this very similar, if not the same thing, as a value system and a value system of yourself. Though, mm-hmm. like you know, a couple times you said, you know, I know I'm smart. I, I'm an intelligent person. I know I could do this, this, and this. Like you have a real ability or a recognition that uh you have value and should be here outside yeah. of maybe even outside of that morality or outside of drug use or or bad 
decisions and all that stuff, you still have value. And I think other people sometimes can struggle, especially. And then when you add the component of drug use and all that stuff, it's very hard to see your value. Like, I, you know, and yeah. I would, I, I don't want to speak to it at all. I know, uh, Jared, he's been on the show a few times. And I know he struggled with, you know, lots of stuff, but I do think sometimes too that, that idea of, finding the value within yourself and that you are valuable to this world and there's reasons you should be here is, is, is a part of that, uh, morality, seeing your own value and stuff like that. It, but it anyway, does seem there's yeah. a spiritual component. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah for I mean, sure. Yeah. I was gonna say, I can't, I can't, uh, yeah. deny that at all. I mean, when you oh. think about what all it takes scientifically for, for any of us to be here right now, oh, and yeah. like the, the, the one in a billion chance that, that it was that, you know, the right chemical makeup happened in order for you to be sitting exactly where you are right now, all the circumstances, all the events. Um, it's like you, you, I think it would be almost foolish to, to think that like we don't have value. And it was hard mm-hmm. to see that um, in the moment whenever I was going through and I, and I was sick. Um, because again, like it takes everything from you, it takes your ego away from you, your health away from you. And it's, and it's, um, you know, that, that is really hard to find. And I, and I, I wouldn't disagree at all that like, um, believing that, you know, you have infinite value and infinite potential. I think that that's like, that's like a huge thing. Again, getting away from the negative consequences and moving more towards the positive motivator. Well, so, so tell yeah. us, uh, is there a, you'd like to point people toward Treehouse, or is that a type of, is there a general thing other than Treehouse itself? Um, although I'm happy to point that direction. It sounds like a very interesting uh, program. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm an admissions counselor for, for Treehouse Recovery. Um, so I basically help people that are in the very first phone call all the way through the admissions process. Um, so that's at treehouserecovery.com. So that's one place where people can go. Um, it's an Orange County-based program in Southern California. I'm also a peer recovery coach and life coach. So I have um, my stuff as well, and that's um, hopeguides.com. And, that, and people can find me at jacob.e at hopeguides.com. So that's another thing that I do. And then um, when it when it comes to you know just anything, I'm I'm willing to to try to help anybody through through this. I've the interesting thing about it um, that we were talking about a little while ago is that I, even though I may not have um, had the misfortune of going through what a lot of people have had to go through, um, I think that the one of the most empowering things that I would like to do is try to make my story be the worst it ever is for anybody to try to mitigate that suffering. And like, yeah. um, for better or for worse, I've helped a lot of people um, who have gone through those various struggles through those things, multiple, 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 multiple times. I've seen people that have been um, in and out of jails, multiple relapses that have had the extremely traumatic situations happen throughout their lives. And, um, you know, for, for me, it's, I have experience helping people through that. And so I, I, um, you know, I want my story to be the worst it ever is because I literally hear the worst of the worst stories every single day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's something I really love about sober people's focus. I mean, somebody that's been through the ringer and then comes out with a, a singular focus and it's f- for a positive reason is is, is a, a asset to the to the whole tribe here. So, Jacob, yeah. thank mm-hmm. you for all the work that you do and 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 the focus that you have on on helping other people. There's uh, unfortunately I, again, does some do you, does, do you have a stat or anything? Like, how many people are dealing with opiates? Do we know? Let me look it up right now. Yeah, let's just look it up. I'd like to get it in here because the numbers yeah. are staggering. I keep hearing it different numbers like I don't want to misspeak. Yeah, the one it's always associated head. with epidemic. The only time I ever hear opioid is with epidemic now. You know what I mean? Not not for like healing purposes or helpful stuff like that. In 2017, an estimated 1.7 million individuals in the U.S. suffered from substance 
for disorders related to prescription opioid pain relievers. Dude. And that's just reported, right? And that's just a fraction yeah. of people yeah. that yeah. use them. And then oh. deaths is some, you know, oh. you know, five digit number. Yeah. yeah. You know. And yeah, it's, it's sure. insane too, because even on like a college, so I'm on a college campus right now, I'm going forth and doing like a lot of speaking engagements here to try to give back to the community that, um, you know, I originally was so involved in. And so even here, like one out of five people report, self-report substance abuse disorder. Wow. Symptoms yeah. that mm-hmm. would fit within substance abuse disorder. So, yeah. I mean, that's pretty insane to think about too, just those that are self-reporting. Yeah, for yep. sure. When, and again, I think this is related, yeah. comes up, it's a crisis of meaning and value and we don't understand all yeah. that stuff very well. Yeah, right. So we're all, yeah. everybody should be all ears at this point yeah. and be willing to let go of some things you thought you knew. That would be yeah, good for, for addicts sure. and non-addicts all. Uh, Jacob, thank you for your time today. Yeah. I enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, man. Keep story. up the good work, dude. Now, Toby, you did Percocet for a while. I'm not joking. I did. Well, I was dying. Yeah. So, uh, really early on, man. Gosh, is right. It was on that tour with, it was our first, one of our, I guess it wasn't our first big tour, but it was one outside of the tooth and nail tour zone uh, and world. We do, it was with uh, Silverstein, Alexis on Fire, and uh, us and Hawthorne Heights. Mm -hmm. And right towards the end, we had six days left. I was rocking out in uh, Virginia, by the way. And uh, that, remember that little record store across from, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, whatchamacallit, it's downtown do. uh, Norfolk. Um, and something cracked in my neck during walls. And I was like, oh, and I just, I was like, oh no, what's really happening? And I walked back to our van and then I laid in the van for almost the rest of the tour. And then uh, it started feeling just enough better that I uh, I was able to play the last two shows. I missed like maybe three or four shows. And uh, I was able to play the last two shows, just not really moving or anything. Flew home to Seattle, uh, got home, went to the doctor. And uh, he was just like, yeah, your neck, you don't really want to mess with it. So um, I'm going to prescribe you some painkillers. That's what he mm-hmm. called them. But I guess it was an opo- opioid because it was Percocet. And I was like, oh, well, I said, I'm getting ready to go on a 30-day tour. I said, and I, can you give me enough to make it? He's like, yeah, sure. So he gave me like a shitload of Percocet and, uh, you know, an ongoing go prescription or whatever. So I could just I could just get as much as I wanted. And uh, I took them for probably a whole tour and didn't even think much about it. Drink beer, take Percocet, and didn't even think much about it. Yeah, Like I know it sounds – but I guess I never – I don't know if I have like a. It didn't give you that feeling that it gave – Jacob. Right now, I didn't smoke it or anything, and I well, was. Well, that's not the and, point. But let me say this though. But also, I never took medicine much in my life. It just didn't me. Like I just, my dad never did something. Like we just don't. Like if I don't have to, I wouldn't take a uh, Tylenol or something for a headache. Mm-hmm. I try to wait out as long. I just never. We never did medicine much or anything like that. And so the idea, I was like, oh, this seems crazy. What what is this thing? And I got to take it, and I got to remember to take it. So I was probably only taking it when I felt real neck pain. And uh, I still have a little bit of fucked up neck, but um, overall, I guess I never got after about a tour or so. I was like, I I don't think I should take this all the time. Well, the it thing might, about it this might way, be good my, for me, and uh, so I just it, stopped. But it didn't fill the hole that it filled filled for him and right. for a lot of people. So let's just say yeah. you had a particular hole in yeah. the way that you thought, and then the, yeah. that doctor I was pouring shitloads of alcohol you, in that hole. Yeah, yeah, alcohol fits that hole, right? But you don't have it's not that same one, and so right. imagine if you had some kind of trauma or thing. No, or I agree. Thing you're working yes. through, and then you get that drug. It's like, oh, this fixed my problems, not my yes. neck, but my right. other problems. And I, mean, I do, and I would say this too. 
Um, I wonder if I would have taken a little bit more and gotten a, a glimpse of that feeling that he said he had, maybe I would have. You know what I mean? Like, I, I just don't know. Now, like, I think I, it's I, more about who's going to – I think you're predisposed to whatever yeah, your drug right. choice or anything would be, and that doesn't mean you're not an addict or alcoholic either. Oh, sure. I, right. But not that. Uh, but no. I do remember when you had those things, The uh, I mean, because this, this whole thing is like everybody knows what this stuff is. Everybody's had it or used right. it or been around it. Yeah, but yeah. I remember the people, the other – Guys in bands yeah. just knowing that somebody had the Percocet. And had everybody's like, Percocet. Oh, my, my back's hurting actually. I know. Too. I remember, I remember that. everybody acts like they start oh, you know what? trying my to get your yeah. drugs. Yeah, Especially like, because we were the Christian band on mm-hmm. tour and they're like, yeah. Hey, I, you know, I got, you know what? My your back's hurt. Is there too, any way right? I could get one? And yeah. I think, uh, I was, I, you know, I, I probably even gave somebody a Percocet. I don't, maybe not. I don't, yeah. maybe I didn't. Maybe I caught on. I don't remember it really. But I wonder, like, you know, everybody's like, hey, man, I got, you know, I'm really sore. To, you know, you go, okay, yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about Percocet. At the time, I didn't even have a clue. Opioid. Yeah. I, I mean, thought it's something like the doctor gave me. Like, I thought it was yeah. like a stronger Advil. Right. That's what that's I thought. How, that's I, right. I mean, the way it goes through doctors to people, it's just, it's all, oh, it's truly know, unbelievable, you know, it's just, and it's, yeah. it's around and people keep in their medicine cabinet after that, that don't have issues and they don't know it's an issue. And then those are the people whose medicine cabinets are constantly getting raided by your high school and college friends, you know, that's it's right. Just, it's out there. People know well, what it stay, is. Stay away from those drugs, folks. Just say no, but don't say no to the BC club. If you're not in the BC club, well say then. Say yes. Yes. Say yes. It is the. Get addicted. Only, yeah, now. get addicted to the BC Club because it is something that will fulfill your life. It will fill it, up the it, hole. It gives you friends, fills it, up all, all your holes. Mm-hmm. I don't care what hole you have, it'll fill, it'll fill that it. thing all the way That's to right. the brim. You will and be filled. Yeah. In a healthy way. In, in the healthy, uh, however your holes need to be filled in a healthy way, the BC Club provides that. It's a Definitely. great group of people. I even have to say this. It doesn't really involve me and Matt that much. It really is just a bunch of great people that uh, are just open to figuring out some stuff and wanting to hear some different perspectives and have all kinds of thoughts and ideas and support this podcast. And a lot of the stuff we're able to do is because of the BC Club. And it's just like people like Joel Tan and Douglas Manzone and David Grode. Daniel Lopez, Andrew Maloney, John Bird, Dan McFarlane, Matt Metzler, Joshua Eden, Trevor Hayes. Thank you guys for being in the BC Club. If you're not on the BC in the BC Club, join it. We'll read your name too. And uh, yeah, thank you, you guys get for listening. Four today. more episodes of the Bad Christian Podcast oh, that's every right. week. We call it the Daily Dose, and it's yeah. not in this feed. It's in a special hidden feed that we can get to you once you yeah. sign up for the BC Club at thebcclub.com. Love you guys.